podcast. Um, as you can see, Rebecca is not here today. We're super sad that she came down with the flu. So she is not feeling so good. So send positive thoughts to Rebecca. Um, I was talking with Eric. It's kind of funny because the last episode, him and I had our like our cough drops ready and we were not feeling so well ourselves. And Rebecca was the healthy one. And now she has come, <laughs> come down with this terrible bug. So um, we're, we're thinking about you, Rebecca. But my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Eric, though, who's going to tell us how to participate and uh, get us going. All right. Well, we are excited tonight, even though it's uh, a reduced team, um, we're excited to talk to Dr. Barrett and to talk with any of you who would like to participate. So our YouTube uh, is will be live on YouTube broadcasting and you can chime in on the School Psych Podcast. This is episode 95, Dr. Charles Barrett. So if you're searching for it, it's SSP 95, School Psych Podcast 95, and we have Dr. Charles Barrett in the heading. You can find us on Facebook, and I think that's how a lot of people find us, but if you need to send a question, you can type it directly into the YouTube link, or you can send it to us on Facebook or on Twitter, and using the hashtag podcast site, I think. Uh, <laughs> we'll, um, Sykes Podcast. Sykes Podcast. Okay, thank you. And um, hopefully we'll get your questions and messages and we'll be able to read them off to Dr. Barrett. So I'm excited. I know Rachel is and I know Rebecca uh, is disappointed that she couldn't be here. She shared that she was excited as well to speak with Dr. Barrett. We met Dr. Barrett initially at NASP last year. And I was a fan of his for a little while, so sort of following him on, on Twitter and social media. So when I met him at NASP, it was one of those like, hey, I know you, <laughs> you're Dr. Barrett. So, and then Rebecca and I had the pleasure of getting to see Dr. Barrett speak in uh, summer NASP in Hartford as well and have dinner with him and some of our other colleagues in the state and my wife. So it was a, a real treat to get to spend time with him. But I'd like to share a little bit about Dr. Barrett. He holds a PhD from Lehigh University, completed his undergraduate at St. John's in Psych and English, and then both graduate degrees from Lehigh, a Master's of Education and Human Development as well, along with his PhD in school psychology. He's a nationally certified school psychologist and works in Loudoun County, Virginia. And Charles is uh, interested in uh, being informed by principles of justice and equity. His scholarship presentations and workshops are centered on promoting positive outcomes for children's academic, social, emotional, and behavioral well-being. And he firmly believes that professional practice is always about the children. So we're going to talk a little bit about that because I think it's a, a great hashtag and also the title of Dr. Barrett's book, It's Always About the Children. Um, Dr. Barrett, Barrett is also uh, an artist. He's a musician and sort of a multifaceted person. And he thinks deeply about and is concerned about the issues facing people through the lens of psychology, faith, and education. Um, he is particularly in interested in critically examining the factors that contribute to misidentification and overrepresentation of culturally diverse students with various disorders and disabilities. His professional practices are anchored by justice and equity, and he represents an unwavering commitment to advocating for populations who have been mar marginalized by systemic oppression. And that was really one of the things I appreciated uh, about hearing Dr. Barrett speak over the summer was hearing about some ways where we can become more culturally engaged, culturally relevant. 
And so Dr. Barrett, I'd love to have you take it away. And um, perhaps we could start with one of the chapters in your book, which is also, uh, I think, an article that you wrote for the Virginia Association of School Psychologists. And you entitled it, Keeping the Main Thing the Main Thing, right. and talking about RTI, um, school psychology, and asking the right questions. Sure, sure. Well, thank you again, Eric and Rachel. Uh, appreciate the opportunity of being here. Again, sorry that Rebecca can't join us tonight, but those of you watching and joining in, appreciate the opportunity to share with everyone tonight. First thing I'll say after that would be, please, please, please call me Charles. <laughs> I don't like the Dr. Barrett thing, but I appreciate that. Um, so Charles is, is, is totally fine. So as, as Eric mentioned, um, one of the chapters in the book, um, keeping the main thing, the main thing, school psychologists, RTI, asking the right questions, it came out of just thinking about how we frame children's difficulties in school. And good, bad, or indifferent, the reality is that we are testing students for disabilities. And I think how we frame the referral question really impacts how we look at data, picks at, impacts how we even approach the evaluation process. So essentially I'm talking about, I think we prematurely uh, place the focus on the individual child. So why is Johnny or Jane not reading? Why is Johnny or Jane not you know, maintaining appropriate attention or social skills difficulties? Uh, but really from the academic lens, um, I wanted to broaden that question to, are there systemic factors that's beyond the child that could be contributing more to their difficulty than the individual child themselves? So for example, looking at um, have students been really provided appropriate instruction in reading and math? Um, and could their difficulty really stem from what adults around them have failed to do effectively um, that looks like disability, um, more of a um, child-focused um, explanation, but it could be systemically we have not provided the proper instruction, proper intervention, proper supports to mitigate um, disabling characteristics. So um, that's that's been my focus the last couple of years in Loudoun, um, just looking at primarily testing um, Spanish-speaking students from Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, uh, and just looking at what could we do more effectively for them rather than assigning labels of disability um, that really may not be appropriate for the child. Um, there's also a great piece. Um, I started following Emily Hanford, who's a, um, a reporter. Um, and there's a piece that came out maybe a week ago, sorry, from you first, Eric, um, a New York Times piece, but there's a piece that she did called Hard Words earlier this year about Bethlehem Area School District. And this really shows how how a, a real school system looked at their data and students were performing essentially um, like the national average, I think third and fourth graders below grade level in reading, maybe almost 60% of them, irrespective of race or ethnicity. And they really looked at how are we teaching reading to our students? And they changed their approach and everybody improved. So that confirmed for me that um, sometimes the place to start is not really looking at disability in the child, 
but looking at larger systemic factors that could be contributing to um, what we see individual children experiencing. I, I'm familiar with uh, with Emily Hanford's, um, you know, the podcast and the report that she's done, and I, I think that's really an awesome example. And I've been seeing more and more, um, you know, blog posts and articles on kind of this literacy as social justice yeah. concept that you know we're hurting. I mean, because tier one, if tier one is not helping kids and not doing what it's supposed to be doing, then you know the the better the parents that have the resources to you know get the tutor or get the lawyer or get the advocate or get you know that type of support um you know they make sure that their kids are okay but then you have this other group of kids that are kind of left behind if their parents aren't able to to do that for them or don't realize what's going on so right. that's a good one yeah the the other piece i think i i talk about in the chapter is um you know, we have these triangles in, in, in psychology. So, you know, tier one, tier two, and tier three. Ideally, we have 85% of students or 80% at tier one, maybe 15 or so at tier two, and then 5% at tier three that require the most intensive support. Many of us may work in schools or systems where we have inverted triangles, meaning we have more kids at tier three than tier one. And I think some people would would say that, well, that's a clearly a tier one problem, um, or yeah, um, would, would say it's a tier one problem. And I heard one person challenge that, that it's not a tier one problem, it's really the kids that we have in this population are not normally distributed. So there are more kids in poverty, there are more kids from diverse backgrounds. Uh, and I thought about that and that response sounded like, um, the more I pondered it was, we can't teach diverse kids effectively, or we can't teach kids who live in low-income economic marginalization um, effectively. So I really wanted to push back on it and say, um, more kids at Tier 3 than Tier 2 than Tier 1 is always an instructional issue. It's always an instructional opportunity to say that we have not found the right approach that's going to work for this group of children um, and, and, and children are unique. They do have different backgrounds and things that work in one setting may not work for all kids. But I think that's our opportunity as school psychologists, as educators, to find which approach is going to work for the students in my school, my county, my district, um, and then do that. Um, I do believe we can teach every child to read. There's, a, um, I think, a quote that I um, say in the book. If we believe that all children can learn and some are not, that is an opportunity for our professional practice, something that we have not yet figured out that we can certainly work towards to really um, increase positive outcomes for all students. That's a great thought. And I totally agree with you. I just read an NPR article on, uh, I think, Anya Kimenetz is the author. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her her name correctly. Um, and it's it's about stop calling the the uh, vocabulary gap a gap. And I I think you know the title at first as I saw it I said hmm what's this about? Uh, but her her point is when we say you know the the children in poverty low socioeconomic status have a significant vocabulary gap by the age of three than children in, in uh, more wealthy uh, upbringing, then we, 
in, in a sense, just put responsibility on those parents. And then our intervention goes to say, well, you're poor. We, you know, here are some things you can do to, you know, improve. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to saying our system is not supporting these children properly. So right. I, the takeaway from the article for me was really to focus on the systemic issues right. that aren't prepared for supporting these children right. rather than just focus on the, the gap or the, the discrepancy. Correct. I think that as time goes on, I'm seeing more pieces like that. I have not read that piece, but um, I believe Ruby Payne was probably one of the first people to kind of promote this idea of number of words. Mm -hmm. uh, and it really comes out of deficit ideology that um, this is what the family is not doing, which damages the mm -hmm. child's uh, preparation for kindergarten. And in some ways it makes sense I think that the difficulty is, as you said, Eric, is shifting the onus or the responsibility to the family rather than we have now um, been tasked with the responsibility of serving this child. What can we do um, mm -hmm. as a system, as a school, as a profession uh, without blaming um, what happened between birth and five? So yeah, I think it's a great point. And those subtle things I think really matter for how we practice, how we think about the work, how we think about families and children does influence what we do for them. So I think it, it's more than a semantic difference. It's really a fundamental um, shifting in our thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And and hopefully then impacts a shift in our intervention practices. Correct, correct. correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I had also read kind of a, and I'll have to try and find it, it was a kind of a critique of that study with the, the word gap study mm -hmm. that, that some of the methodology, um, you know, there was just kind of a small sample in time that these, um, you know, graduate students or whoever was doing the study would go into the homes and mm -hmm. that, you know, it was intimidating to some of these families to have somebody here recording, you know, how many words you're saying and that, right. you know, um, this kind of perpetuates if, if we're not even sure that the study was done um, properly and it, right, it's right. perpetuating this this idea that, you know, <clears throat> yeah, like you like you said, that it it's comes from in the family or you don't read enough books or you don't talk to your kid enough or, you, you know, it's just not helpful. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I think that um, chapter, I want to say chapter five in the book, I talk about these kind of these overarching principle of how to embed social justice um, into your practice. Um, but I added a sixth one that's not in the book um, after that. I think it's um, empowering families mm. uh, to really have meaningful participation in their child's education. Um, so I think, you know, working in schools, I think some schools do a great job with outreach and engaging families. Others, not so great. Um, and I found that, you know, working in a in a school system we get all the acronyms, we get all the kind of the terminology, the nuance of IEP and child study and FBA. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't really work in this system, you don't understand those things. So I think that one of the things that we can do as professionals is really take time to explain what's at stake. What are we doing? What are we thinking? And allow the family to come to their own decision uh, for their child. And I found that even people from, you know, higher income backgrounds, you know, graduate degrees or advanced degrees, they struggle with understanding this complicated world of public education. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I think those are opportunities for us again to shift the responsibility from what families are not doing to what can we do to more meaningfully engage them as active members of, of this team process for their child's benefit. Yeah, that's a great point. We use, you know, I, I mean, I think when I look at some of the discussions that we have on some of the, the school site groups, we struggle to define consistently define some of the constructs that we're measuring. So dyslexia, learning disabilities, mm -hmm. I can't imagine parents coming into that, you know, yeah. and already being confused and being more confused by, you know, some of the difficulty that we have with uh, the constructs themselves or difficulty Absolutely. measuring or inconsistency from state to state. And, um, and that's just one piece. So oh, sure, sure. Yeah. I was at a, I'm um, just a quick end. I was at a uh, back to school night for my stepson and um, I was sitting, you know, in this meeting and the school counselor was there and basically asking a, a father asked a question about um, diploma status or how do you get these different tier diplomas? I got what he was trying to say. Was it framed perfectly? Probably not. Uh, but I was so disappointed in the response from the professional mm -hmm. um, that this dad was just kind of trying, trying to get information about, you know, kind of what these different options are. And it just wasn't handled in the most appropriate way. My assumption from the gentleman was that, well-educated man, um, good job and all those kinds of things. But again, it, it, it reinforced for me that school is not easy for people to understand. Um, so I think we have to do a better job at meeting people where they are and then really including them in that process. It's so hard. I mean, we, we all sit in IEP meetings and we use jargon and it, it's, it's hard to, to remind, I, I find it difficult sometimes to remind myself to kind of slow down for the parents yeah. so that they're right. understanding and I'm not talking in school psych lingo and I'm not um, confusing everybody. and. Yeah you know, to slow things down and, and to ease people into some of this. Cause yeah, they, they have no clue what any of this is about. I mean, it, it took all of us who are in here, it, it right. took, you know, several years to really fully understand ourselves. So. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. This might be a good place to jump in with a couple of comments. We have a few people who are um, commenting and in fact, Rebecca's listening and commenting. So hi, Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca. Okay. Um, one of my colleagues uh, asked culture with its socioeconomic factors, particularly, oh, thank you, particularly from third world countries, there it is, <laughs> um, is a personal experience. So where do we start uh, with a, in a system where the staff hasn't experienced or isn't aware of the difficulties? So I would say the first thing is, it's a great question. Yeah. Um, you know, most of our teachers are primarily white, primarily female, and primarily monolingual. So I would say that there is a, a, a huge lack of knowledge, experience around a lot of these issues. I think the first point, uh, the first place of, I guess, beginning that process is an openness to knowing that I don't know at all about this student. Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of being open to learning. I, I know when I started practicing 12 years ago, a lot of what I learned was not in graduate school. It was really working with people in my school, special education teachers, 
gen and teachers, principals, APs, other psychologists, diagnosticians. Um, and I learned a lot from my colleagues. So I would say having this, um, uh, I'm an ongoing continual learner, I think is very helpful that I just don't know at all, uh, but not stopping there, really challenging ourselves to, I need to become as informed about the backgrounds and the culture of the people that I'm serving, the children, the families. Mm -hmm. um, I think if we don't know those things and we are almost inevitably doing harm to those students and families. Uh, so what's meaningful to them? What do they value? Um, but just even learning more about their school systems in their native countries. For example, I've learned over the years that when my students come from El Salvador, Honduras, um, Guatemala, school may not be every day. School may be you know, a couple of times a week, half day, and they may focus only on reading and writing and not really on math. So when they come to me, you know, having completed third grade, that may not be the third grade that we consider third grade. Um, and their skills may just be a reflection of what they've been exposed to in their in their teaching. So I would say just being being open to learning about you know, who are my students, who are my families, and what do I need to know to more effectively meet their needs. That's a good thought. Um, and Will also chimed in with some thoughts about ACEs. This is a little like our conversation we had about ACEs um, and pointing out the potential outcomes without offering solutions. Correct, correct. Yeah. Absolutely right. I think, again, school psychology, uh, I think we do a lot of critiquing and a lot of analyzing, but at the end of the day, people want some kind of concrete recommendation. It's not always possible. I, I certainly am aware that these are complex issues, but I do think there are things that we can promote as, let's start with this as a concrete um, action, maybe not solution uh, per se, but something that we can give people tangibly to move forward um, to benefit children. Hmm. I think that's a good thought. And and uh, Will and Rebecca commented about trauma as well, the, the impact that we're just beginning to see, I think, uh, the impact of poverty being traumatic and yeah. impact of trauma on um, student achievement and engagement and involvement. I do think, uh, I think Rebecca is saying, don't these schools cry? Yes, I, I would say that a and any effective RTI or MTSS system is really fundamentally based on quality core, quality tier one. Mm -hmm. um, so tier one instruction for school A, which may have many students in poverty, may be quite different than uh, school B or C um, that has a different population. So I, I would certainly agree with that, that um, the RTI, MTSS approach has to be uniquely tailored to the needs of, of that population. And maybe what we're doing is a bit too much um, kind of a generic approach, taking um, you know these maybe um, canned curricula or, or programs that may work in one setting mm -hmm. and have no effectiveness for um, other places where we're we're serving students. Often, I see with uh, RTI models, yeah, the school just has this one program this can program and it's what everybody gets regardless of what you know is going on with that individual student or what the mm -hmm. referral concern is up oh, we'll yeah. 
this is the program we have. So in they go. <laughs> right. I think that's a great point, Rachel. I, I think that unfortunately how some of our systems are designed, the individualized nature of meeting students' needs only becomes an issue for identified students. So that's when students mm -hmm. get, you know, specialized instruction in reading or math or writing or paper support, when really effective differentiation, effective intervention should be individualized to student need as well. So I think um, that's not only an issue for SPED, but it's really an issue for Gen Ed as well. Uh, really, if it's decoding, that's again a, an effective decoding intervention, not comprehension, not fluency. Those are great, but that might not be the child's need. And I think that thinking doesn't always happen like it should. Um, I'm sure it does in places, um, but I think the individualized nature of intervention is certainly an opportunity for Gen Ed students as well. That's a really good thought. I, I, I think just going back to that whole uh, concept when you presented over the summer about asking the right questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really, uh, you know, it, it's it hasn't been that long that my myself, my teammates have really focused on what's our referral question. What are we really asking? What are we expecting an assessment to show us? Right, right. Um, and you'd think, wow, that should be fund fundamental, foundational, but mm -hmm. we're just starting to remember to do that. You know, like, oh, wait yeah. a second. You know, at, at Lehigh. Um, you know, the big research school, mm -hmm. we kind of had this mantra, what is the research question? And until you knew that, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't really review literature, couldn't think about methodology, until you had a, a well-formed question. One of my um, my internship supervisors, a guy named Mike Odick in Baltimore, he would say to families when we would refer students, what don't we know now about the student that you mm. want this process to uncover. And I remember that years later, but it was it's, it's a brilliant question um, because really, what are we really looking for? What are we trying to answer about this young person um, through this assessment process? So um, if the parent tells me, I wanna know more about their social skills or their attention or their cognitive abilities, um, that doesn't form you know, what I do. Um, so mm -hmm. they just having a really, not only well formulated, but also the right question um, really determines the quality of what we get. Um, I tell my students over here in DC and Virginia, if we ask, you know, how questions, that's one answer. You know, how do you do this? How do you do that? But how many times did you or uh, that's a very different question or what did you do versus how many times did you? Um, we get good information, but we may not get what we want if we don't ask the right, well-informed question. It helps so much, I find, um, you know, because you can end up doing totally unnecessary or irrelevant assessments and, time and whatnot. I had, um, and I have an intern this year, and um, we were talking about what assessments would be appropriate, you know, to answer some questions and whatnot on a case. And she was used to in practicum, just everybody got a cognitive. That was just like the standard thing. And I was, you know, so we had a conversation about, well, how, how would a cognitive answer 
this question? How would that be helpful? And right. you know, so I think that that was interesting that she was just used to her old supervisor just give a cognitive. <laughs> I, I know. Great point. Great point. Yeah. We, we have a comment uh, from Sumera, uh, who's a behavior interventionist in Canada. And I, you, you tipped us off, Sumera, with the O-U-R and the word behavior. <laughs> Having lived in upstate New York, not too far from uh, Toronto, I always uh, teased my Canadian friends about the O-U-Rs. But, um, but your comment is, is very pertinent, um, reminding us that uh, intervention needs to be customized also based on the priority of the parents. So yeah, really connecting with the families. Right, right, great point. And we, we talked um, earlier this year with Terry Maloney about um, motivational interviewing. Uh -huh. And I really see that as a tool for connecting with parents, really finding out what their goals are, right. when the child's referred, what do they need, what do they feel like the child needs, and um, the importance of connecting with them on a much more personal level. Right. I think school psychology historically or traditionally has been a very quantitative focused field. So we like our rating scales and our standardized tests and our T-scores and all, those are great. Those are helpful. But some things we can only get from conversation with people and just asking questions that they can respond to freely. Um, I think even in that process, we, um, we can minimize premature judgment about what families value and um, kind of what their concerns are. I do think I do think some things are relative. I think um, we may be very concerned about you know students reading or math or their writing, but depending on where a family may have come from, you know, um, community violence and war torn countries and things mm -hmm. like that, um, that may not be the most pertinent right now. Um, and I, I don't think they're ignoring it. I don't think they're overlooking it. But in in their experience, you know, my child is safe. They're in school all day. They're they're fed. They're warm. They're clothed. You know, this is a lot better than what we experienced in our native country. Uh, but again, I don't think it's that the parents don't care about their education. It's just in the grand scheme of what's all that's gone on in our lives, um, they just see that as a different priority right now for what they're managing and negotiating as a family. Mm. That's a good point. All right. I, so, I'd like to I, go ahead, Eric. Oh, no. uh, I was going to say, I, I do want to um, just plug your book for a second. Thank you, <laughs> um, really, one of the things I like about this is that it's a great book for discussion. So each yeah. chapter has uh, sort of a, a talking point mm -hmm. uh, to think about. And then there's a discussion section afterward where a group of students, a group of uh, practitioners could mm -hmm. talk about the ideas, come up with their own thoughts and, and applications. And, right. and I appreciate that. It's it, it's a book that I wrote um, back last summer and uh, came out in September, but it's really for all educators. Um, one of my schools actually here in Loudoun bought the book for all, all their staff, teachers, speech pathologists, because um, I think it's broad enough to really be meaningful to anyone who works with kids. And as Eric said, um, it's structured in a way that's not overly academic, uh, but really for you know hands-on practitioners. Uh, but the questions at the end are designed for your own 
um, reflection personally as an individual, but also in your own professional learning community with other school psychologists or other staff, teachers, principals. Um, and really just, it's meant to be um, kind of a, my lens into how I approach school psychology as a school psychologist. Um, kind of my journey from how I got to school psychology in chapter one to things that are really important to me. So assessing English learners, social justice, instructional um, needs. Um, the last chapter talks about advocacy and policy um, and really how at some point we really have to affect larger systems and um, that could be school board, could be state level, federal. Um, my wife works in policy and really does a lot around low, um, economic justice. Um, we talk a lot about how her job is run adults, which is not my thing. Um, I like kids every day, but I do think that, that there's value in at some point what individual psychologists, teachers are doing has to become rooted in a systemic policy that really mandates people do the right thing for, for young people. So there's some thoughts about how to affect policy um, in different ways towards the end of the book. But yeah, it's a great, great resource, you know, easy read, kind of a nice, um, comfortable, hope it's inspiring, motivating to you. So thanks, Eric, for the plug. I appreciate that. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's a good point, too, about um, bringing it back to, to policy and, and law and, and things like that. Because I read a piece, uh, I don't know if it was a blog post, um, I'll have to track that down, too, about how, you know, it's great that there's these conversations about equity and social justice and these things are happening in a lot of school systems. My, my district, um, in fact, is doing kind of several PDs across the school year on equity and things of that nature. Um, and I think that's awesome. Um, but this blog post was kind of calling out that some systems are not maybe doing enough that they're they're starting these conversations and they're making people aware that hey you have these biases and hey you know you know, kind of be careful with this and, and but they're they're falling short in kind of making real measurable changes and that was yeah. kind of what that post was about so i like that you are mm. you know tying that to a, a bigger <laughs> right, right i think again i think like um think something like implicit bias or unconscious bias, mm -hmm. talk a lot about that. And in some ways I feel that we become comfortable with that level of awareness. Um, but what's after the implicit bias discussion has to be some concrete policy changes that really hold people accountable if they're still engaging in these types of practices. Mm -hmm. um, we've known about that for years and we're still seeing poor outcomes about suspending diverse kids more than others. Um, I don't know that it's always implicit bias when we've talked about this for five, seven, ten years, but um, I think the, the lacking policy infrastructure um, could be one of the reasons why these things continue to happen. <laughs> Awesome. Um, I'm thinking I'd like to, because you've got so much going on and there's like <laughs> not enough time to cover everything, but could we switch gears and maybe talk a little bit about the NASP Exposure Project? Because that's Absolutely. something that's really exciting to me. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is a project that um, um, the African American Subcommittee, which is one of the kind of the subcommittees of the MAC, um, Multicultural Affairs Committee, 
last, um, I guess it was NASP in Atlanta, maybe 2018, we were talking about um, the lack of diverse school psychologists. And that kind of segued into well, how did we get into the field? And almost everyone said, you know, I kind of fell upon it, stumbled upon it, happened to know someone who was a school psychologist. Um, and even now when I travel, I ask the question, and almost everyone says the same thing. I just kind of found it one day. Um, so we talked about some real intentional outreach to high school students and undergraduates to kind of tell them who we are, what we do, and maybe those who are inclined to be teachers or school counselors, other types of psychology, maybe child psychology, they would consider us as an alternative to those other um, professions. So we started spring of 18 with some high schools and a few HBCUs, and we did 860 presentations. Um, students, I'm sorry, 860 students were exposed, and then kind of a more national launch September 1 of last year, and phase one, about 6,500 students, undergrad and college um, and high school. Phase two was last spring, um, spring of 19, and that was uh, about 3,500, I believe it was, or 3,100. So our first year, 10,650, and then now phase three, which is fall of 19, we're currently at 4,620 students um, across the country, different states. Canada has also participated. So it's been a really fun experience. Simple. It's about a 35-minute PowerPoint that's already prepared for you. Um, and there's a link that Eric can share later on at some point. Um, but it's really fun. You go in, you download the stuff. Any college, community college, high school class, um, we were targeting like AP Psych or IB Psych or um, Psych Electives, but any high school student or class, totally fair game, just to raise awareness of who we are, what we do as school psychologists, um, and really to encourage students of various diverse backgrounds. Again, we are mostly white, mostly female, um, so any other diverse group would be much appreciated. Um, it, it does address two of our critical areas of focus for NASP. Um, one is workforce shortages. Certainly um, people are retiring and we're not filling jobs as we used to. But also the other one is also social justice around making the field more diverse to represent the students and families that we're serving across the country. So if you're out there, you're a school psychologist, grad student, uh, practitioner, supervisor, faculty, anyone um if you can help us with one presentation per semester that would be tremendous um there's also a very short link um short google form to input your data and then i post updates on social media uh facebook linkedin instagram twitter just to highlight people for their time and efforts in this project so really exciting love it and i hope you can get involved in some way yeah. That's fantastic. And it's it's really easy. I, I know last year I was part of a panel, so I didn't actually use the NASP exposure data. I wasn't part of the, the data, but I was able to use some of the concepts in my presentation Great. and made it really easy. Great. Um, 
So anyone, it, it's simple to do and the information is all there for you. And uh, I think it's a great opportunity to promote the field and diversity in our field as well. It's wonderful. We're, we're collecting data on phase three up until December 30th. But I do realize that after Friday, I think most people are gonna be done for the year. So whatever you can do between now and Friday, we much appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I love seeing the updates, you know, that yes. Yes. more we're exposed. I'm like, yay. <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. It's so um, right now, since we started last year, um, last spring with our pilot, we're at 15,270 um, students wow. exposed in under two years. So it's really exciting. We we're talking before the podcast started that it'll be very interesting to see in three, five, seven years how these efforts really improve um, workforce shortages or improve um, diversity in the field. So looking forward to it. It's going to be around for a while, multi-year initiative. So get involved when you can. Yay. And it's, like you said, you know, people just say, oh, I just, and that's how I got into school psychology was um, my friend, Anna, uh, yeah. her sister who is a school psychologist. And so she got Anna into it and Anna got me into it and it just kind of, you know, happened. So it would be so awesome to see in five years, you know, when people ask that question, how did you learn about school psychology to say, well, you know, this awesome school psychologist came into my classroom and did this presentation right, and I was just right. <laughs> It's great. Very exciting. Yeah. Okay. Um, I know too that um, we, we bypassed some questions before I did my topic change, so I apologize. That's all right. It was I a was good segue. So about the exposure project. <laughs> we do have some some good. There's a good discussion going on. Lots yep. of people chiming in with some good thoughts and questions, and yeah. Um, so here, uh, Will. Um, how have you um, invited those deeper conversations with parents? Um, perhaps you may have some questions, contacts, et cetera, um, that have been most helpful in the process. I think this was along the lines of involving parents and mm -hmm. figuring out what parents um, you know, value as far as that kind of referral question. Yeah, so I would say yes. Um, and it's, it's for me, it's, I don't know, it's so second nature, I guess, embedded in how I am practice as, as a psychologist, but I would say the more you can just ask parents at meetings, at child study, wherever your pre-referral process is, uh, what are your concerns and uh, you know what you want us to really uncover or help to reveal for your child. I was in a meeting last week with a, a mother from Africa, uh, I think Liberia or Nigeria, I'm not sure, but um, we were talking about referring the student and there was some significant concerns around attention or inattention. And we explained the whole process and the mother was not on board. She was very much adamant that I don't want to do this. Uh, but she did leave the door open to maybe, you know, maybe in a few months, I'll think about it. We can come back and discuss. Um, I do think she has some very strong ideas about what disability means for her child. I totally respect that. Um, but I would say, um, questions around um, what do you think your child needs uh, as far as support? Um, what are you doing at home to support that? Um, and what can we do to support you in supporting your student are, are questions that I ask parents um, to kind of get a sense of um, how we can be helpful. For example, this idea that families should not speak to their children in their native language is just false mm -hmm. or not read to them in their native language. 
they're still hearing good reading behavior. They're still hearing fluency. They're still hearing good phrasing. Those are helpful. Um, so I think it's also working with the family to um, reinforce good things that they're doing or encourage them to do things that they may not think are helpful, but really are um, very much in their purview to do or in their ability to do um, are things that I've done. More, more systemically, um, Loudon has been embarking on some pretty intense equity work um, since last spring around race primarily, but other forms of inequity and marginalization. And we have intentionally included parents on ad hoc committees and different advisory councils to get the parent perspective. Although we have staff who live in the county and have kids in the county, it's different when you're a principal or a teacher and you work here rather than being only a community member sending children to school. Um, and I think as diverse as those groups can be, the better. So I think in terms of, of faith background, in terms of um, race, ethnicity, in terms of SCS, geography in the county, the more perspectives we have, the better we are informed to do what's right um, for all students. We really don't know what we don't know. And I think having a broader table, having broader perspective is always helpful um, for that process. So um, those are just some some ideas from, like, I guess, a local school context, but also a broader, maybe more systems level thinking is inviting people to share and then making them comfortable in that process that what you share, we really value, may not do it all today or uh, may not agree on it, but at least we hear your perspective and there's some space to share that for our benefit. That's a great answer. And I think that uh, Gus had chimed in very similarly. Should we, um, the policy development involve these parents? And I think, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Resounding yes. I think it's, um, again, challenges around maybe language difference. So I think those, again, are opportunities for the system to really um, have infrastructure in place to really accommodate parents and families that. Uh, may need more support or need, may need more, um, yeah, more support to really uh, participate meaningfully and not shy away from it because it's challenging for us or it takes more effort on our part. But mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. I think the families who are most marginalized, most impacted by these factors need to be involved in the discussions that move us forward. Yeah, I am um, where I'm at now, for example, they they'll translate IEPs for parents, but they mm -hmm. translate psychological evaluations or community yeah. or and they only do kind of what they need to do. And that's right. it's hard. And I, I don't know. It's not sufficient. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Two really have, good comments on YouTube uh, right now that uh, one that uh, sometimes the only interaction we have with these parents is when there's a disciplinary problem and yeah. we create that negative context. And then uh, the other um, parents are overwhelmed and that empathy really leads to much better open communication. Um, and, and then too much information on what the child needs may backfire too. So correct. Great thoughts. Correct. I think in maybe chapter two, of the book, I talk about a lot of these behaviors that 
uh, were not taught explicitly in graduate school, as school psychologists at least, about how to engage with people effectively. That could be another family member, it could be um, a staff member. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I think there's a lesson that uh, my grandmother taught me, or taught, taught my dad, my dad passed on to me, uh, and grandmother said, uh, you have two ears and one mouth. So listen twice as much as you speak. Um, I took that to heart because I, I do think sometimes we are quick to offer solutions, answers, which are necessary, which are important, as I said earlier, but I think we do that sometimes before we've given the family a chance to share their perspective or the teacher a chance to share their perspective um, on the child. I think after that happens, they're much more ready, much more open to receiving whatever intervention idea that we have or recommendation about the board. They've been valued, their perspective has been appreciated in that process, but yeah, um, fundamentally, the job is relationship with people, with kids, of course, but if people trust you that you have their best interests that are at heart and we share and we show that in different ways outside of meetings, outside of testing. Um, I do think that accounts for a lot of our success and effectiveness as a field. All right, we're getting close to time. So I want to just any last minute questions and comments, but we also wanted to talk a little bit about, um, we know that you're you're a busy guy and what, what other current projects have you, I mean, we talked about, you know, the book and we talked about the exposure project, anything else that you've got kind of happening that, that might be different? <laughs> um, so I was, so. Um, or upcoming thoughts on future projects that sure, we should be sure. for. <laughs> so, um, I can't say a lot about this one yet, but my wife and I have a um, budding project that hopefully sometime in 2020 will be uh, released. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, can't really share too much, but, but that's one idea that's out there. Um, you know, my full-time job is certainly a psychologist in Loudoun County. So I uh, support interns in our, um, we have four doc interns, four EDS interns. I support the four doc interns uh, with a rotation in um, high poverty schools and diverse mm-hmm. schools. Um, I teach at various programs. I'm at Howard, I'm at George Mason uh, Community College, teaching graduate school uh, school psychology, undergrad psych. Um, my NASP involvement, delegate, um, various committees. Um, so right now I'm serving on um, the committee um, around social justice mm. and um, our book read, Unequal City. Yes. We had a great discussion this weekend. We had a wonderful Eric. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Gotta get my hand out of the way. There we go. <laughs> Carla, uh, Carla Shedd, great book about um, students in Chicago. Mm. Um, what I love about the book, and I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it yet, but um, she really does a great job centering student voices uh, and getting their perspective on what they feel going to various high schools in Chicago. Um, so great, great book. Um, if you have not gotten it yet, please do. We do have resources. I'll send it to Eric as well, the link to some um, great questions for discussion around uh, with graduate students, again, colleagues at your 
various work sites um, throughout the year. We had a great chat yesterday with some area students from Bowie State, Howard, and Gallaudet out here in the DC area around the book. Um, so that's something that we're doing. We're focusing this year on low income and economic marginalization, L-I-E-M, Liam. Um, it's really a, a broader framing of poverty beyond mm. like, so it's kind of what is the culture of poverty? What what are the different um, effects that poverty has on students and families? Um, the MAC, Multicultural Affairs Committee, I chair that um, right now. We're doing some great things um, at convention, diversity dialogue. Some of our diverse students are going to be sharing some research um, that they're doing around race, ethnicity, different areas of culture. Uh, so it's, it's great. I, I love what I do. School psychology is fun. It's my life. Um, I don't have the best work-life balance because honestly, it doesn't feel like work. So mm -hmm. I tend to do it a lot. Um, mm -hmm. I work every day on something, different writing projects, chapters, and traveling, but I, just, I really enjoy it. So it's, it's really just my, my way of living. <laughs> Can't really separate life from school psychology sometimes. It's kind of one the same for me. That's uh, awesome, and it shows. Yeah, yeah. it does show. <laughs> I, 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 I described you, and I, I, I hope this doesn't come across as um, in some way, uh, um, I don't even know, uh, negative, but I said, Charles is a ball of energy. Just, <laughs> oh, you know, uh, I, and I don't mean that to you know belittle or anything. You just come across with all this uh, knowledge and information and um you know, when we heard you speak in the summer, it was like, wow, <laughs> you know, light bulbs going off and um, great conversation. And so uh, I, you know, this, this is great. And I think that shows in what you do, you know, you put your heart into everything you're doing. I appreciate that. You know, chapter one, again, in the book, um, I do believe this with all my heart. Um, I do believe beyond school psychology or beyond being an educator, whatever we do in life, there has to be a sense of purpose assigned to them. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe that right now I'm fulfilling my purpose as a school psychologist. Um, I do think I could be a school psychologist for the next 35 years. I, I love it that much. And I may do that, um, but I may do other things, but fundamentally for me, it comes down to two things. It's hope, and wholeness for people. So as a school psychologist, as a graduate educator, as an undergraduate educator, um, I want people to really have hope and to be whole about whatever they're experiencing. So in my teaching and talking to kids and talking to families, teachers, those two ideas are really um, infused, kind of enmeshed in, in my practice. So I, I really want to encourage people that Whatever you're doing, you know, as you know, an educator, a school psychologist, really think about what is the the larger purpose beyond the job. And I think for me, that's what feels it. I don't see it as you know, this is my job, you know, to test kids or counseling or group. But it's really how I communicate hope and wholeness to people mm. uh, right now as a school psychologist. So it just makes it all great. <laughs> 
It's awesome. amazing. Yeah. Hope and wholeness. I um, hope that you are yeah here for another 35 years already. <laughs> and I, I just feel like, yay, like to have somebody like you in the field is just, you know, invigorating and I think um, you know, inspires other people. And mm -hmm. you know, you've just contributed a lot. So appreciate thank that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And and really your voice is so valuable. These conversations about equity and social justice are so necessary and we need to keep having them. So, right. <laughs> you know, we're important to yeah. change. Yeah. It's exciting. I think school psychology, it sounds so cliche, but it, it really is at a crossroads for in a lot of ways with mm -hmm. shortages and just, I think, a new uh, way of thinking around a lot of things. I think social justice and equity discussion beyond simple diversity, simple mm -hmm. inclusion. Um, I, I think it, the great opportunities that we're kind of on the brink of that can really change how the field really functions. I'll give another quick example. Um, you know, when I was trained in school psychology, uh, it was almost exclusively quantitative methodology. Mm -hmm. So your Mancovas, ANOVAs, which is great, but some questions we can't answer that way. I think now there's there's a more openness to mixed method um, kind of thinking and methodology that gets that kind of the the feelings, the values, perceptions of people, and we need that moving forward. So it's a great time to be a school psychologist. Exciting, challenging work, uh, but certainly a lot of opportunities to do great things for children and families. For sure. Totally agree. Awesome. I love these feel good episodes. Yeah. Like I get too inspired. I'm like, let's go out and do school psychology. I'm like, yeah, forever. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, you know, we've got this week and then I, after Friday, I'm on summer break, uh, summer break. <laughs> I'm jumping the gun. Winter break. <laughs> so recharge the batteries. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, all right. Well, thank you everybody for watching. Thank you so much, Charles, for coming. Thank and you. Joining. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate the opportunity. Great. Absolutely. Thanks for all the comments and great conversation. Good discussion. I see my friend John Lestino. Hey, John. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. And then our next episode is on January 5th. And we're going to have uh, Dr. Timothy Shanahan on. And he uh, served on the reading panel and um, is a, a big name in, in literacy and kind of in some of these debates that we're seeing on Twitter now about how reading in tier one should look like. So I think that Wonderful. that will be a good yeah. one too. So I'm hoping to see people tuning in for that. Excellent. All right. All right. Good night, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Charles. Thank Dr. you, Bear, Charles. Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much.